Well, it was really unlike any other experience I've had. They were so active in the screenings. <laughs> they were responding to what was happening and punching the air <laughs> when something made sense to them. And I remember that my brother came to one screening. He said, I could hardly hear what anybody was saying because there was so much <laughs> audience participation. Hello, welcome to This Is My Cinema, a new podcast from the British Independent Film Awards, all about celebrating our cinemas and the brightest stars in our filmmaking community. I'm Rihanna Dillon. And I'm Michael Leader, and together we're chatting to some incredibly talented people who you may have seen on screen or who work behind the camera. And we're asking them about the cinema experiences that have inspired their lives. And how they like their popcorn. Yep. The most important question of all, Rihanna. <laughs> These podcasts are coming out the same week as the British Independent Film Awards themselves, which you don't want to miss. They're hosted by Tom Felton, alongside loads of guest appearances too. They're happening on YouTube and Facebook on Thursday the 18th of February. So make sure you check back each weekday this week because we're releasing a new podcast every day. So Rihanna, on our first episode... I asked you what film you would show in your dream cinema and you said it was Singing in the Rain. Do you know where we're watching it? Do you have a cinema in mind? I've gone back to my roots for this cinema and this is the place where I pretty much saw most films growing up and that is The Odeon in Brighton, which is still there. I feel like it will never ever die, which is great because it's a place where I spent so many of my formative years. But it's a classic teenage hangout I remember when I used to go and it was like 3.50 a ticket on Orange Wednesdays and that was just such a treat to be able to spend so many so many hours in the cinema with my friends and I was lucky enough actually to host a Q&A there for Beats you know that fantastic black and white film about rave culture set in the 90s it was honestly a really excellent film and hosting a Q&A at that cinema where I had spent so much of my childhood was incredibly special. So I think I would go back there, show Singing in the Rain to as many people, my friends, family as possible and just bask in the nostalgia of the night. So Singing in the Rain at Brighton in the Rain? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of rain in Brighton, yeah. Sea spray as well. (laughs) (laughs) Our guest on this episode is Sarah Gavron, who's nominated alongside Associate Director Anu Enrique for Best Director at the Biffa Awards this year for her film Rocks. What I love about Rocks is just how much energy is in that film. We're seeing all of these future stars as well in their first ever movie. The fact that this was streetcast, I think, adds so much authenticity, but also it's just a really exciting way of showcasing new talent. Mm-hmm. It really is such a great addition to the canon of films that show London mm-hmm. on screen. It's a very different sort of London to what we're used to seeing, so full of energy and vibrancy. But of course, this is very different from Sarah Gavron's work to date. She made Brick Lane, the adaptation of the novel. She also made Suffragette a few years back, that big historical epic looking back at the suffrage movement. But then this is something that's so different, a new area for her to move into. Yeah, so we got into all of that stylistic variety in our conversation with her, as well as her love of Jane Campion and her snack consumption confession. So, here is Sarah Gavron. Sarah Gavron, thank you so much for talking with us today. So, as we've said so far, this is your cinema for the duration of our conversation. And one question we're asking all our guests on this podcast is, if you had a cinema for an evening and you had free reign to programme whatever you want for us to watch, what film comes to mind? 
This is so hard for me because I'm someone who loves so many cinemas across London and I've been to cinemas across Britain and across the world with films. And I really, really jump around in terms of what my favourite film is, depending on what project I'm involved in. And it wildly varies. But I've tried to embrace the task. So (laughs) we showed Rocks in Toronto at... Winter Garden Theatre, which is just such a bizarre venue because it used to be a place for vaudeville theatre and silent films. And then it closed for many years and they've got leaves painted on the ceiling in gold. And when we took the cast of Rocks in there for their first screening in Toronto, you know, it was their first trip abroad for some of them and their first time in the film festival abroad. And it was so exciting. And so I'd have to get everybody there, all my friends and family and all the cast of Rocks and all the people I've ever worked with into the Winter Garden in Toronto. (laughs) And I would screen only because it was the film that made me think I wanted to definitely be a filmmaker. I'd screen The Piano by Jane Campion. I could screen a hundred other films, but I'd have to choose The Piano because it would work on the big screen and it would take me back to those early moments of thinking, this is what I want to do. Those are both beautiful choices. In fact, film fans can recognise the Winter Garden Theatre because that's the cinema in, I think, The Shape of Water. Is it? Um, I remember seeing that film in Toronto and it's the cinema that, that Sally Hawkins' character lives above and there's a beautiful crane shot that kind of goes into the cinema. And it's, oh, it's wow. wonderful, as you say, the leaves on the walls and everything. But I'd love to know, so The Piano, you say, is the film that convinced you that's what you want to do. What was it you were responding to in that film in particular? What I responded to in the piano, I think it was what we would now call the female gaze. Mm. So it was the fact that it was, you really, in every shot, I felt I could tell this was made by a woman and there was such a distinctive perspective on the world. And I saw it when I was just at the point of thinking that I loved film and I didn't know whether I could, whether I dared to pursue it. And seeing that just made me feel that it was possible somehow. It was truly inspiring. It's massively cinematic. And I could feel that there was a woman behind every frame of it and, and a vision, even though it was a collaboration between lots of brilliant artists. But you know, it was so distinctive in that way that it inspired me to pursue this career. It is such a, even now, such an inspiring film to watch. I saw it projected big at Somerset House, at Summer Screen, a few years ago. Uh-huh. A beautiful film with all those landscapes as well that still stands up today. So, but Sarah, could you please contextualise it? If that's the film that really showed you that there was a path for you onto the screen, were you a film fan before that? What were your sort of formative years at the cinema? Yeah, well, so my formative years were all a bit patchy because, you know, I had a local video shop that had about 10 films and we had the Odeon and I remember seeing Top Gun and Dirty Dancing. Oh, wow. (laughs) So that that was kind of my, and I never, ever saw an art house film and I don't think I ever saw a British film. So I thought that was the world of film. (laughs) But I was very interested in drama at school and plays and I was very interested in art and used to draw a lot and paint a lot. So those kind of things were coalescing and I was quite interested in politics. And so I had this kind of notion at about 16 that I wanted to do something around documentaries, but I didn't really know how you did it. And then when I was 18, I remember a quite cool older friend of mine took me to the cinema in Islington to the screen on the green to see Terence Davies' Distant Voices Still Mm. Lives. And that was a complete revelation for me because I thought, you know, all the way throughout I was going, this is so slow. And she was like, no, stay with it. And at the end, I thought that was really interesting and it really lived with me. And so that also set me on my path. But 
I didn't think about the role of director. And then I saw films like Jane Campion's The Piano and I saw Mira Nair's films and I started seeking out and Sally Potter's. And I, I then started going to the cinema and looking for those films mm-hmm. made by women or distinctive visionary films, you know, films that had a real eye behind them. And that got me super excited about the idea of fiction. And I realised it brought together so many of my interests mm-hmm. Which Odeon was that that you were watching films like Dirty Dancing in and things the like Holloway that? The Holloway Road Odeon. Holloway Road Odeon. I mean, I do think those massive blockbusters only showing cinemas have got so much to answer for, haven't they, in our kind of formative <laughs> cinema going years. But how lovely then to have somebody else bring you into that sort of world of independent cinema. I know. I mean, you have to be thankful to people around you, don't you? If I hadn't met that friend, yeah. I might never have found my way. Yeah. <laughs> So I know you did start in documentary filmmaking, as you said, but then the move into fiction, how did that happen in your career? Would you go to film school and then that change happened or were you already on a path or how did it happen? Yeah, so I did a degree and then I had a boyfriend living in Edinburgh and he was finishing his degree and I went there for a year and joined the Edinburgh College of Art and did a what was called a film MA, but really the undergraduates knew so much more about film than I did at that point. And I made some shorts there and they taught me a lot. And they said, have you seen Tarkovsky? And have you seen Bergman? I was like, who, who? But anyway, I started watching those filmmakers. And as I came out of that, I thought, well, I need a job. And I got a job running at a local production company in Kentish Town. And they were making documentaries mm. and they got me doing bits of research. And eventually they employed me researching a documentary about the miners' strike. And then I got onto other documentaries and I got a job at the BBC through that because one of them was a BBC documentary. And so I ended up in political documentaries, mm. which was kind of fascinating. And it was at the time where suddenly they were sending me off with my own camera to film different stories. So I was having quite a lot of autonomy and learning a lot about the world. But all the way through that, at night, I was writing ideas for fiction films and going to see fiction films and really knowing that I wanted to head towards drama. So after about five years of doing that documentary work, everybody at Edinburgh College of Art had talked about the NFTS, the National Film Television School, as this kind of mecca. And so I thought, well, I'll apply there and I'll apply to do documentary because I won't have a chance to get in for fiction. And, and then the night before the application was in, I stayed up all night and changed it to fiction. And then I I got in and spent three years there making short films. I think I made nine short films. And really, it was the only the last film I made where I sort of found my feet. And that was the one that went to festivals and got me into conversations about longer form films. Yeah. Is it quite a practical course, NFTS? Are you learning from practitioners themselves it's very practical and it was at that time it was free and Mm -hmm. it was a three-year course and it was fantastic opportunity I mean it still is a fantastic opportunity I think if you go there I mean there are so many different ways into film and I always say when I'm talking to people wanting to enter in the business there's no one way to get into film Mm -hmm. you know there's just so many routes but what was brilliant about the film school for me was that it brought together a peer group you had equipment you had mentors you know some amazing teachers and you had to produce content. So you were constantly (laughs) having to come up with ideas and actually make them and finish them. And just that opportunity to explore and make things for me was just what I needed at that moment. I needed to try my hand at it. You sounds like you made quite a definitive choice there between, you know, obviously documentary and then fiction filmmaking. But fiction is such a kind of massive catch-all term. So what specifically did you want to be making films about while you were sort of learning? You know, what threads were you picking up that you're like, I want to take these sorts of stories further? 
Well, what I realised looking back was that the stories I was interested in were stories of things I hadn't seen. Mm. So stories about girls at the centre, stories about the world around me. So stories that I was somehow personally invested in. And that was what excited me. And Lynn Ramsey was a few years ahead of me and I saw her short films. I thought they were incredible and you could feel her personal voice in them. So I was sort of searching around that. But what that's kind of translated into later is being interested in stories of people we don't, you know, who are kind of sometimes invisible in our society or stories that have caught my attention. And I think I would like to see that film. Mm. I'd like to see that story on our screens. Mm. And I see that in your films, both in terms of source material, but also the view of Britain we see mm. in films like you know, Brick Lane, Suffragette, of course, is a historical drama, a real sort of rousing one at that. And then Rocks, which in terms of its sort of immediate craft, it's not a high genre piece or anything, but it's the most radical thing you can see this year because it's just the lies of these real, as realistically as we can you know, show it in a drama, the lives of these girls in East London. And I feel this sense of great cause behind your films. And I wonder why do you think cinema or does cinema have this power and responsibility to show the life that we see outside our doors yeah it's really an interesting one isn't it because you kind of look around and you think uh i'm i'm surprised actually that rocks is read as radical because you think (laughs) well these girls are on our streets they're in our schools they're on our buses we all know them why aren't they on our screens but just the act of putting them on our screens and centering them in their stories and blowing them up 10 feet tall in our screens feels quite significant and it's saying look these people deserve to be seen their stories are worth hearing there are all sorts of people living in our worlds that got lots to teach us that we can share understanding we can learn about different people's ways of life we can get insights and the film has this extraordinary immersive power to take you on this emotional journey and to make you feel like you know people that you don't know and i feel that's hugely exciting and i love watching films from other cultures you know and i loved watching and Corriere's films recently that became a massive influence for me and I watched his whole body of work all in one go and you think well his worlds are so far away from mine but somehow I'm connecting or I'm learning or I'm fascinated by those films so I find that really exciting and the power for cinema to change things I'm I'm thinking about that a lot and watching this year's body of work and just watching the documentary The Collective and Mm -hmm. how that's teaching me about Romanian society and then watching the TV series It's a Sin and seeing the impact that's having on young people going and having HIV tests. And then we know that Kathy Come Home influenced policy. So we know that cinema has that power, not just to reflect the world we're in, but to influence the world we're in. And I think, you know, you do feel a sense of responsibility. Well, I do as a filmmaker, that you want to get that right, that you want to sort of tread a line that feels somehow that you're not hammering home a message. That's never good. It's never what people want to watch, but somehow you're saying something significant with what you're making or you're making people feel something significant, or wake up to something. I think the words like collaboration, teamwork, are so closely associated with what you do, especially with rocks. So thinking about that, when you're gathering your team together to tell a story that isn't necessarily something from your own personal experience, how do you you know, find the right people. I'm thinking, you know, you've got Claire Wilson and Teresa Icoco, who you obviously worked with to write rocks, but then of course, We know that the experiences came from the actors themselves. So tell me about forming that team. Yeah, well, as you say, collaboration, I think, is 
such a kind of exciting thing about filmmaking. And I think it's what drew me to it because you bring together so many people and, and what you create in the end, you can't attribute to any single person. And somehow it's the collective that creates that. And I remember when I was very young, my mum ran a well, she worked at a local community centre and they all would sit around in these smoky rooms deciding who should set up the youth club and what should happen and how should it evolve. And it was very much about being non-hierarchical and no one being the leader. And I was really intrigued by that, even from a young age, how together they created something and no one quite led it, but it came out of the group. And I think I've always been really drawn to that and film plays into that. And I think we need to acknowledge as much as possible all these voices and their input and their labour and their creativity and how that contributes to making something. So Rocks was right from the outset, we decided to be really upfront about that and say, look, I can't alone make a film about these people and let's work with the young people. Let's build it with them. Let's find a team who connects with the stories. So Teresa Okoko and Claire Wilson were there from the very beginning and Lucy Pardy and Jessica Straker were casting and, and I worked with an associate, Anu Henrique, and then the producers. And we were all together brainstorming ideas. And what is quite unusual in film is we found the cast without a brief. We didn't think we had to find this kind of girl or that kind of girl. We were really open. We said, let's just find a group of young people, of young girls who want to work with us on this, who want to evolve it and create it. I mean, Teresa Okoko had very much come up with the story outline, but then the building of it happened with that collective. And I loved that. I th- it was hugely energizing for me and I learned lots mm. and it meant that the film developed in ways that it couldn't have otherwise. And just to take you back a step, how did you get the writers together? How did you come to work with them specifically to begin with? So the very early conversations were with BFI, Film 4, and they suggested getting in touch with the casting agent, Lucy Pardy. And so I went into research in schools. And then I was talking to Faye Ward and Amina Ayab-Allen, the producers. And we thought, rather than get a single writer, let's get a couple of writers. And Faye had met Teresa and Faye had also met Claire Wilson and done a bit of work with her. So they came in and met on it and we all got on and we all started talking. And Teresa had a hugely strong connection with youth communities because she was actually had a full-time day job at that point working with young people in the community. And Claire worked for a refugee organisation and was very plugged into people from different parts of London and from different backgrounds. And so somehow we all sort of met in the middle and started doing workshops and workshops with the young people. And through those workshops, we started brainstorming the ideas and that's how it all developed. Amazing. I just wanted to ask about that moment then. So we've heard about the beginning, the roots of rocks, and then taking you to sort of the very end moment of that creative process and seeing it on screen for the first time with all of those actors who would never have seen themselves on screen before. Can you just tell us about that experience and watching them watching themselves? Well, it was really unlike any other experience I've had because they were so active in the screenings. Mm. And so they were talking through it and responding to what was happening and talking to their friends and high-fiving <laughs> and punching the air when it, something made sense to them and they recognised something. And, you know, they had friends in there and they had family in there. And so I remember that my brother came to one screening and said, I could hardly hear what anybody was saying because there was so much audience <laughs> participation. But I, I, and I really loved that actually and it even watching it with them I realized certain things were resonating that we'd put in that I hadn't even 
understood mm. were going to be resonant for them, but they were. So it was a real revelation. It felt like a very live experience, just as the filmmaking itself had felt. Very different from like a critic screening, I imagine. Very different. <laughs> I remember being on the red carpet for Rocks and it just felt like that whole crowd around the red carpet were filled with friends and family members who were cheering louder than like maybe there's a premiere around the corner with someone like Brad Pitt. There was, they're being drowned out by this premiere because they were the stars for a night. I suppose we've just been talking about the power of cinema, the power of the big screen. This is a whole new generation where we're only being told day after day, they're all on Twitch, they're all on YouTube, they're all on TikTok. Do you think that the cinema still means something to them or is it just, oh, I'll watch it on my phone someday? I think it does, actually. And I think that they found it really the two things that you get in the cinema experience, one that you get the collective experience, and you get to sit amongst other people, strangers and friends and family, you know, and feel it together in the dark in this immersive, uninterrupted way, being shown in the way it should be shown in terms of sound quality and image quality and scale and size. And, and I think they really loved that. That was really, really special, because they could look around and go, all these people are interested in this story. It's not just me in my room on my phone. Actually, we're all engaged in this together. And then afterwards, you know, people are chatting as they go to the loos, as they walk into the foyer. And so there's nothing like that. I don't think you can replicate that in any other environment, can you, you know, when you see it on small screens? I mean, I think there's a value in them watching it in lots of different ways, but I, I love that collective experience. And it was so exciting to see young audiences together experiencing mm. it. I think you put that in a very beautiful way, because sometimes representation is seen just as an end goal in itself. But that sort of two-way relationship, you say, where it's not just about the majority seeing these minority stories. It is about them being seen on screen and then they believe that their stories are worth something and their lives are de deserving of that big screen treatment. I think that's a very beautiful way to put it. I also like how you talk about that shared experience of the cinema with strangers and loved ones at the same time. And one question we like to ask guests on this show so far is, can you think of a moment in a film or a film you remember seeing that you're glad you saw with a crowd in a cinema? Well, so many. I mean, I've had so many kind of incredible experiences. A couple with my mum. Okay. <laughs> um, call me by your name. My mum doesn't see very well. So I was having to kind of narrate it to her <laughs> oh my quite loudly, <laughs> which at certain moments was you know, a little bit humiliating. Talk us through but, that peach scene. How did you, well, how did you exactly, word that? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, what? Come again? What? She's like, why is everybody gasping in the audience? <laughs> What's happening? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I also had another moment with her actually where we went to see at the Prince Charles Cinema in Leicester Square. Mm. We went to see The Sound of Music when I was younger and we were all Amazing. dressed as nuns. As nuns, of course. And she hadn't seen it before. So there you were in the audience who knew every line and every word. And when the Nazis came, she went, not the Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody in the audience just cracked up. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, another great experience I had was when one of my very, very early films, first long film I made out of film school was called This Little Life. And it had a festival life. It was a TV film. And I went to see it in Toronto. And we were in a cinema in Toronto, the film festival, where there's a tube train runs underground. And quite a lot of 
older people came up to me and said they literally felt the ground move <laughs> <laughs> so, I, you know that was good but yeah no so much has happened to me in the cinema I mean I remember so many experiences and I just love it as a place and I've clutched onto strangers in horror movies and I, you know I find it very difficult to be contained in those environments and not weep and not laugh and you know that's so many great memories there already. Because I wanted to ask how your relationship with the big screen experience changed once you started directing for the big screen yourself. But it sounds like it's the same exhilarating experience. Yeah, I mean, it's always, you know, seeing your a film you've worked on with an audience. I mean, there's nothing like it. It does make you want to make comedies, though, because there's nothing <laughs> better than an audience laughing. And that's always hugely pleasurable. And also what I like about when you make films, then you feel what the audience feels when you sit in a cinema. So that's another great thing. But generally, I just, nothing for me replaces the experience of sitting in the dark watching a film with other people. I could watch it on every other device, and I do, but nothing replaces that experience for me. <laughs> Where do you sit when you're in the cinema? I always sit in the middle of the middle. Do you? <laughs> yeah, always. Is that the best place? Um, well, because I like feeling the atmosphere around mm-hmm. me and I like being centre of the screen. For me, it means I can sort of, I feel I'm getting everything. I always sit right at the very back. Do you? But on the very end, because I have such a tiny bladder that I get really oh, yes, that's worried. A too. No, I do too, but I end up, you know, just making everybody stand up <laughs> while I get out. <laughs> It's interesting what you were saying earlier about being drawn to directors who have such a distinctive style or voice. When you think about, you know, you kind of look back on the films that you've made, I think they're all stylistically so different and so varied. I think there's definitely a common thread to be found in the sort of stories that you are drawn to telling. But, you know, what do you see as your voice, whether it's kind of like, you know, a visual thing. Yeah, no, it's interesting that they're all so different. And I was doing a session the other day with the producer, Faye Ward, who I've worked with. She worked on Brick Lane and she worked on Suffragette and she worked on Rocks. And we were talking about each other and how we are to work with. And she said, the thing with Sarah is every film that we make, she makes me do a PhD in a new subject. So (laughs) I have to learn about improvisation and I have to learn about the Suffragettes and then I have to learn new things. And I think that there's something, I'm very, very drawn to a challenge and I like making life hard for myself and learning something new with each film and I think that's why each one has been such a different venture for mm. me I mean yes what links them is is thematically more obvious that they're about each of those films has a woman at the heart who in some ways discovers who she is and has a kind of version of a coming of age whether literally or you know at an older stage and so I'm very very drawn to those stories and people we haven't seen on screen much but Definitely in terms of the challenge, I like setting myself a new challenge every time. Growing out of that, we spoke about earlier the sense of collaboration around rocks. And it is one of those, you say, I may say radical, you say organic and obvious things that it is such a collaborative spirit behind it. I wonder, growing out of what we were just talking about, what is your relationship with that credit, a film by or directed by the single name that we often say, like you say, Tarkovsky, Bergman, with your own films, which has been so fresh to see around rocks that we are talking just as much about the scriptwriters, the casting, the producers, the 
actors and their contribution to the film? I think it really depends on the film. For me, mm-hmm. it would be really disingenuous for me to say a film by because I work in this collaborative way. I want to acknowledge that. I think the film is richer for it and all the input of the writer is just as important as my input and is just as important as the input of so many people. And in Rox's case, the input of the cast was huge. And so I feel that I want to be honest and open about that. And that's what I benefit from. And that's what the film benefits from. You know, obviously there are writer-directors who shoot themselves and edit themselves and then there's a more of an auteur thing going on. So, you know, I think it varies depending on what the film is. But so many films are profoundly collaborative. So I always like it when you really, really get to know who was behind those films and the massive creative voices behind them. Just thinking about the different you know, areas of filmmaking, are there always sacrifices to be made in filmmaking? Because obviously you have big studio films that are so often plagued with rumours about being controlled by external pressures, producers, etc. And then, of course, indie films are often associated with tiny budgets and having to do things on a shoestring. Is there like a happy medium to be found or do you always have to make some sort of sacrifice somewhere? It definitely is a battle that the budget does massively affect you. I mean, sometimes, you know, and I I hate to say this because you always want people to give you as much money as possible (laughs) to make the film you want to make, but occasionally those constraints can be useful Mm -hmm. and they make you examine things and test your idea and come up with more creative solutions here and there. But it's always that battle between this is what we want to do, but what can we do? Mm. You have to have this kind of very pragmatic hat on as well as a creative hat on. And, and they sort of fight each other. And that's where producers are so key because they allow it to happen. They allow you to do what's important and they make it possible. And I'm so indebted to them for that because it's a really hard job. And those financiers too, you know, we have a creative dialogue with the BFI, with Film 4 and going back and forth about what's important. And that's vital as well, I think. Mm. Have you ever been asked to have to compromise your creative vision for a film? Definitely in terms of, you know, well, it'd be great if we could film in this location, but it would cost a fortune and we just can't and we can't see that vista and we can't do that special effect and we can't do that visual effect. So yes, you know, all the time. And then I kind of try and think of ways around it and work out what the priorities are Mm. and different from writing a novel where you can do anything. Yeah. Yeah. The budget is your imagination or how, exactly. how good you are at stringing good words together. It. Yeah. <laughs> it's something that they say about comic books as well, how on the page the budget is infinite, but surely it's just limited by how good your artist is. <laughs> and I can't draw for toffee. <laughs> but to take this back to your film taste and film diet, I love the sense that you're always watching films and taking things from it and enjoying them. Is that still an ongoing process? Are you still seeing films today that you're taking things from that may inspire you for the next film around? And what discoveries have you made recently? And that can be as recent as you'd like. We know we've not been to cinemas much in the last year. Yeah, I feel I'm evolving all the time or that my taste is changing. Not that it discredits anything I've liked before, but it's just sort of where my interest is. So with Rocks, I was looking at a lot of European films. You know, I was looking at Divines, made by Uhuda Benimina. I was looking at Mustang, films that I hadn't considered before as influences, but suddenly were really exciting to me because they were they had female friendship at the heart and girls at the heart of them and, and were centering them in their stories. Recently, I've become really fascinated by that hybrid form that's coming out of 
films like Chloe Zhao's Nomadland, where she mixes essentially what is kind of documentary techniques with mm. fiction techniques. And I think because I did have some grounding in documentary, I'm really interested in that. And, and Rocks, you know, some of the research was using documentary techniques and even some of the filming techniques. We were drawing on the ways you film documentary there. And that's where my recent obsession with Corriada comes from too, how in a film like Afterlife, he went out and interviewed 500 real people, as they're called, or non-actors, and then he blended them with actors in the film. And you get that kind of collision, which I think could be really exciting, which sort of somehow pulls you out of the film, but I think in interesting ways that makes you know that you're in a real world or a fictional world and you're thinking about it as you go. And I enjoy that a lot. Correda is one of my favourite filmmakers. I wrote my master's thesis on particularly his move from documentary to film because he made TV documentaries in the 90s, then found this hybrid form from films like Nobody Knows, Still Walking, where it's actors, but it's just unfolding in this very organic way. And hearing you speak about that film, I know you mentioned it on a Radio 4 interview last year, suddenly an aspect of rocks just came into sharp relief for me, that it is just life as observed, but within the structure of drama. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think we are at a really exciting point uh, formally where audiences now, and perhaps because we consume so many different forms that we are excited by Mm. things that are formally challenging and formally break out of the normal genres that we're used to and meld and use other techniques. And I think there is an openness to it that I didn't think there used to be. And I'm excited about exploring that in my own work. Mm. Amazing. Sarah, it's the important question. That we ask I'm everybody waiting, I'm waiting, now. I'm excited. <laughs> so, how do you like your popcorn? Salty or sweet? Or do you have a different snack or no snacks at all? Well, I am someone who likes to eat constantly. And anyone <laughs> who's worked with me on set knows that I've got to always have something in my pocket to snack on throughout the day. And I believe in snacking. And it's one of my great pleasures in life. And going to the cinema and snacking during it, I heartily enjoy I do get irritated by other people's noisiness, but my own is very acceptable. (laughs) And I would always go for salt and sugar Mm. because I'm a bit of a like it all sort of person. But I would also, you know, very openly expand to other snacks. So I know that some cinemas have kind of gourmet snacks. I'm all up for them too. But I also really enjoy the cheap snacks. I'm someone who likes all snacks. Mm-hmm. And, and you're open to whether they're loud or quiet snacks. Because I know some people, they have a limit, don't they? Popcorn is a nice quiet one. But if they're crisp, Wait, sorry, popcorn crunch. is quiet. Popcorn Compa- is not compared quiet. Compared to a quaver. It's better than crisps. It's yeah. better than crisps. So yeah, I'll give you that. I'm also really enjoying the amount of times that we've said snacks because it's one of my favourite words. I'm it's, just it's, really been, it's, it's just before lunchtime. I know. <laughs> I know. But I've already had a lot of snacks. So. <laughs> what are you like washing it down with? You know, like a bottle of red on the side? Well, you know, I like, I like this new thing that you drink in the cinema. I'm yeah. enjoying that. And I'm a big chocoholic, so I always have mm-hmm. chocolate. But noisy, I know I, I get the fact that it's annoying if someone's really grappling to open a bag of crisps. That can really irritate me. And also when you've made a film, you feel, I mean, it's not right, but you feel like every word matters. And if they miss that word, the whole film's gone. They might as well not watch it. Or if they weren't there for the opening, it's over. So, so I have to be careful about that. And, and I have been known to turn around and stare at people, kind of give them the evil eye if they're being noisy during a certain key bit. So if someone goes out desperate for the loo and misses three minutes of your film, is that like a really heartbreaking thing for you? 
It is. And I really have to stop myself going and whispering to them what happened during that moment. Yeah. <laughs> While it they're in the cubicle, bad. this is what you're currently missing. <laughs> exactly. It's quite bad. What a treat, though, if you did walk out and you had to go to the toilet and come back and then the director themselves kind of yeah. <laughs> fills you in on what you've <laughs> missed. I do. <laughs> You'd be mortified. <laughs> The most important scene. <laughs> yeah. So let's just recap that dream cinema situation. So we're at the Winter Garden Theatre in Toronto, we'd be watching The Piano with salty and sweet popcorn, but also whatever other snacks are on offer, there'll be a whole selection on a table outside. Bring whatever you want. I think that sounds That's like exactly fantastic the evening. dream scenario. Yeah. <laughs> fantastic Sarah Gavron thank you so much for talking to us that was so much fun oh thank you both that was great really enjoyed it huge thanks to Sarah for that wonderful chat I am loving this cinema road trip that we're going on with these conversations you know and I really have to say there's nothing like seeing a Jane Campion film on the big screen Sarah of course mentioned the piano but I love her film in the cut which was kind of much maligned at the time very wrongfully maligned and i was very fortunate to put on a screening of that film at curzon soho went back when i used to do programming with oh, cool. uh, my outfit and misc films and jane campion was there for a q a and she's so lovely to see her she's such a generous amazing filmmaker also you gotta love the rough right mark ruffalo it's my nickname for him oh that is peak mark ruffalo <laughs> So if you've enjoyed this episode of This Is My Cinema, you're in luck because there's a new one coming tomorrow. That's right. Dialing in all the way from New Zealand, where she's currently filming Lord of the Rings, we have Morveth Clark, who's nominated at the Biffers for Best Actress in St. Maud. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so you don't miss it. We'll see you then. Bye. This is My Cinema is a Little Dot Studios production for Biffa. The show is hosted by Rihanna Dillon and Michael Leader. It's produced by Jake Cunningham, Annie Hughes and Harold McShiel. And we're edited by Content is Queen. <laughs> <laughs>